Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home this week. And as you can see, we're going to jump right into it. I am joined once again, and it's been a while, about a year and a half or two years or so we've been uh, since we've last spoken with Anthony Magnabosco, a man who has um, made it his mission to uh, educate, promulgate, disseminate, talk about, uh, you know, clarify and improve upon the, the topic of street epistemology. Hi, Anthony. Welcome back to the show. Hello. Hello. What's up, dude? Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I've been on your show maybe two or three, maybe two times. But then, yeah, about a year and a half ago, we met in Austin at the Faithless Forum, I think. Yep. 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 It was either a year and a half, two years ago. We had an awesome discussion. And I, I love seeing you. And yeah. by the way, I, I, watched one, I watched one of your live streams uh, last week. Oh, awesome. And yeah, you, you were talking about how, I mean, what you were talking about, it's like right up our alley, right up my alley as, as far as the street epistemology stuff. Where you said something like, "Listen, even when you're talking to a Scientologist, you you really can't talk about the Scientology. You, like, talk about shiny happy people instead. That's Take the right. pressure off of them." And that's exactly what we do in street epistemology, with maybe one caveat. I think you can explore Scientology with a person as long as you're not talking about the sensitive nature of the claim and 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 the uh, the actual facts of the claim. It, what we try to do is get into how people are reasoning that those facts are actually true. And there's a subtle yeah. difference there, which I'm sure we can get unpack. And no, I'd like to, I'd, I'd very much like yeah. to, to understand and, and take apart what you were saying there. I'd like, mm -hmm. because it's been a while and because, um, and because audiences, you know, over time don't necessarily consume all the earlier content, especially for somebody like me, who's got, you know, a couple thousand videos on his channel. Um, why don't we go ahead and quickly review for everybody what street epistemology is? Absolutely, yeah. So we've been working on a course for the last almost three years now to wrap our heads around what this thing is and what the goals are. And we've come up with this definition that I think is really good. It's, it's a way of helping people critically reflect on the quality of their reasoning through conversation. And it's a, it's a civil conversation, but yeah, that's exactly what it is. Like, yeah. let's, let's see if we can just think about how you're thinking about your beliefs in a really constructive way where you're care carefully reasoning about things. It shifts the dynamic from attacking the claim, which is very, very sensitive to people's identities. And, and a lot of people think that you have to be well-versed in the topic in order to explore those types of claims. You don't. Mm -hmm. In street epistemology, we ask questions to to help our conversation partner reflect on how they've reasoned to their conclusions. And that's essentially what it is. Hmm. And it could be a back and forth. In fact, we we prefer it to sort of be a back and forth. If I were to use it on your claims, I, I would hope that you would use it on mine in return. And that's essentially what it is. There's a whole bunch of different goals that I, I hope maybe we can get into at some point, but mm -hmm. but that's it in, in a nutshell. Excellent. And so, so we could say, and that's great because that's exactly my understanding of it and has been my understanding of it since the very beginning. This was uh, first put forward, if I remember right, by Peter Bogosian in a book called A Handbook for Creating Atheists, right? A Manual for Creating Atheists, something like that? There you go. That was the last part. Yeah. yeah. Bogosian wrote the book, A Manual for Creating Atheists. I read it in 2013. Blown away because I was using 
counter apologetics with religious believers and attacking them, ridiculing them. It's not the way to go. And, and I've seen a similar message when you speak with your with with your audience about Scientology and, and the right. ex-Scientologists and even people are still in it. That's right. And and that was profound to me because I, I damage relationships with my family and friends that I'm even still trying to repair to this day. And I I, I won't ever go back to debate. This right. way is is way, way better. So I read the book was desperate for examples of people using it. There weren't any at the time. So I strapped on a GoPro and started flagging people down in my community. I started with the street preachers at the Alamo and then finally like came to my own semblance of, you know, hey, wait, this isn't exactly working because they're in transmit mode and just started talking to regular people. Yeah. And I was getting better at it, sharing my examples in the community. People were giving me advice. And here we are 10 years later, dude, almost 10 years later. (laughs) And it, 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 it has improved drastically from even from the videos that I've uploaded to, and I've stopped, I've, I've even stopped uploading videos two or three years ago, and it's even continued to grow and improve since then. Yeah. And that's just been, been an incredible thing. And yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for that book. It really kind of kicked things off. It really was a very interesting thing. And anybody who is, whose hackles go up at that, oh, a manual for creating atheists, what? I, I know. I, I want to actually let y'all know. Peter himself didn't like that title. That was the editor or the the publisher who who insisted on that. He wanted to call it something else. That was not. That was like that's not really the point, right? It was about. Yeah. At least that's what he told me. I, I mean, <laughs> that was my understanding too. Yeah, that's yeah. my understanding too. But I have to say, because of that title, it broke through the noise, and it was what I needed at that moment. Yes. Now, in yeah. hindsight, in in you know, when you look back and you look back at video, even my own video examples, I I see the problems, and I and of course, I think we see the problem with the title of that book even to this day. Yeah. Um, because the the approach of street epistemology is not just for atheists to use it with God believers. Exactly. We can exactly. use it with people who are into Scientology or who are against Scientology. It doesn't matter where you stand on these claims. It's a tool for everything. In fact, um, one of my friends, Reed, uh, who's the president of the nonprofit that we have for street epistemology, had said, I wish it was called a manual for creating critical thinkers. Exactly. Because what I think this is, is one of the best refined tools for applying critical thinking in discourse, in conversation. Yes, that's what street epistemology is. It's critical thinking in conversation. Exactly. And it's, and it's, so, it's so simple, really. There's not, there's, if you can just kind of put yourself in the mindset of being curious and wanting to understand yet challenge in a respectful way, you're going to probably have an amazing conversation. They'll probably never forget the conversation and you probably would have helped them reflect on their reasoning and maybe even shift their confidence. But there's like the the hidden secret of street epistemology. I think now today, looking back is it tends to change the people who learn it. Mm -hmm. You learn to be more humble about the claims that you make and yeah, yeah, yeah. I, we, we've even had conversations about this. Like, we have. The focus? I, I think I was one of the first to bring this point up. <laughs> you, you have. You have. I think three years ago, you're like, yeah. you know, maybe the focus of like using this to change somebody's mind is not as, as uh, productive, maybe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's take another look at it. And, you're, and I think there's, there's some validity to that. And we hear that from people who come to the, to the community after watching a video or reading a book or the course that's coming out. People are giving us feedback on how it's changing their the way that they want to interact with other people. Exactly. And that is just that improves relationships. And I think it 
it's so sorely needed when we look at today's landscape uh, at how we're demonizing the other side and just not making any progress and things are just things are just going to shit. Well, I so. think that's exactly right. And this is why I've had you on multiple times and why I probably will have continue to have future conversations because this is a topic I am probably more passionate about as a methodology or as a tool set to use to to do the things I would really like to see people doing a lot more, which is having rational discourse, conversation, interacting with one another, tolerance, compassion for one another, understanding of one another. This is a, a custom-made tool to create those things. Yeah, And that's why I love it so much, because there are so few things in the world that do this. Yeah. Yeah. I liken it to like discovering plutonium in your backyard. It's just something amazing. Like, yeah, it, it seems to work. And, you know, the guy that started it all, kudos to him and kudos to the community who have taken the idea and run with it and proved yes. it. Because when we look back at some of the suggestions, it's, it's grown so much and there's, there's such a utility to it. There's such a need for it. And it doesn't matter where you stand in any of these these mimetic tribes that are out there. Our, the purpose of our, our organization and why I want to do interviews like this is to introduce people to this tool so they'll consider using it the next time they encounter somebody who makes a claim or they're 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 just struggling, you know, what what's my role in all this? How do I how do I make a difference? Right. This is this is the way that you can make a difference. Even if you just introduce these concepts to your family, Broadly speaking, you're not even talking about a specific claim. You can just talk broadly about how we reason about things. And it tends to open up people's minds because you're not attacking the, the sensitive belief itself. That's exactly right. And that's why I highly recommend people learn about this, um, learn how to do it. It's not hard, but it does require a certain mindset a certain attitude adjustment i think and this seems to be absolutely right right and this seems to be the barrier to entry is the is the is this attitude adjustment because you can't come into this i i believe th that a a proficient competent street epistemologist is somebody who's not there to argue they're there to learn Yes. And when you approach somebody like that, that's the same kind of attitude you have to present when you're going to deal with somebody who's in a cult. Mm. And so I see these two things as very related to one another because we're talking about how do you talk to somebody about the most sensitive beliefs, or as you mentioned, right, because they're so tuned in and connected with the person's identity, how they literally think of themselves and image themselves. These beliefs and concepts are so integral to their self-image that they, they, they have a hard time imagining not thinking this way. And you want to discuss this and sort of take it apart and maybe even challenge it. But how do you do that without getting the guy's hackles up, without turning on the fight or flight? 
and instantly right. making a defensive person who's now fighting you rather than talking with you. And the, and the modes of brain operation are different in those two things. Fight or flight is defense. It's, a, it's attack mode. It's, oh my God, I'm being attacked. I have to defend myself now. And that's not where you want to go with a cult member or with, a, with doing a street epistemology. You, you, you want to have a friendly, open, I need to talk to you, the person. Yeah. So here's how we're going to go about this. Could you now describe for the audience, like, what does this look like? And then maybe we might, I, I thought maybe this time we might actually do a scenario where, where you could sure. sort of, uh, you know, we could sort of demonstrate to the audience how this works. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can put yourself in the mindset of a former Scientologist or even pick a claim that you have today. Exactly. Um, I was, uh, yeah, whatever. Role play, I was a little worried about it because sometimes, you know, it's artificial in nature. And we're per it's performative. When there's videos out there, you can just watch people doing this. But you Fair hit enough. on something right at the start. You hit on something at the start about the civility, uh, the, the kind of mindset that you need. Yeah. Um, we, we boiled it down into two main categories of mm -hmm. like, the, the right mindset for these types of engagements. And, and the main one is a civility mindset and, a, and an epistemic humility mindset. So yes, being, being friendly, being civil, being cordial, but not being a pushover, mm -hmm. okay? There's a mm -hmm. difference there. I, I could be civil with, with somebody who's in the KKK, even though I think that their views are despicable. Um, but I also wanna be uh, humble about what I claim to know. Mm -hmm. If you're open-minded, and, and when you approach the conversation that way, that's the, that's the greatest start. The other thing I think is like, ask yourself, what am I hoping to get out of this conversation? What's my goal? Do I want to change them or change their mind or get them to abandon this belief, which is a fair goal if you have, but there's some, there's some important goals before that, that I think are critical. And that mm -hmm. is asking questions to truly understand how they're reasoning about things and doing it in a way where you're not misrepresenting you're really helping them evoke the clearest representation of how they form their conclusions as possible. That's right. And then asking questions about their reasoning that will help them critically reflect on that process. Like, Hmm. Yeah. That's why, right. Why, how did I decide that that was a good reason for thinking that that was true? That's gold. That is a, a that is a primary goal of street epistemology. And then, if you want, you can push further. You can, there's there's gears. There's a gear shift here. Like you can shift it from second to third, and you can actually start asking questions to challenge the quality of their reasoning to the point where they may start becoming persuaded by their own lights that maybe this isn't as well thought of as I thought, or maybe I don't have as, as good enough a justification for this. And that's the point where we as street epistemologists tend to back off to let them decide where do I go from here? Exactly. We don't usually use it as a moment to inject another belief or anything at all like that. Although you could do that. And I have seen people do that. There, there are activists who are drawn to SE for that very reason, mm -hmm. uh, because there's an open moment of reflection and consideration and Hey, there's an opportunity there. Um, I, I tend to back off on that. Like, Hey, here's my card or, Email me again if you want to talk later, or if it's family member, that's a great moment to end it. That's right. And and not be so pushy and not be so concerned about messaging your own views. And if you can do that and you can ask questions in a series of order and, and give them plenty of time to process it, it's going to likely go very well. Way better than arguing, debating, ridiculing, and all the other stuff that we tend to see online. That's right.
That's ex- exactly. And and I and I truly believe that the number one reason for that and this and the for the success of it is because it's there's a there's a fundamental principle involved with street epistemology that is that is um, not necessarily commented on. Maybe it is in you know I, I don't see it, which is you can't change somebody else's mind for them. They have to do it. If you're going to get somebody out of a cult, you can't talk them out of it. Or force yeah. them into right. your position of or view. Exactly. Yes, and that's that's why street epistemology is is not coercion. Right. It's a form of persuasion that's not coercion because your conversation partner is doing all the lifting. Right. You're simply. Well, you are creating an environment where they're reflective and they're, they're, they mm-hmm. they they feel calm and comfortable and safe and and you're being direct with them and and all that. But they are driving. You're the passenger, and they should always feel in control. If they want to end the talk because you're asking too many questions, end it. If they want you to keep asking questions, go for it. You can check in with them occasionally. How are things going? Do you would you like me to stop? Do you want to know why I'm asking these questions? I, in fact, I've even seen people who are doing SE today, where they're literally explaining. Now, next, I'd like to do this because of this reason. You're pulling back the curtain completely. Yep. And that's the way to do it. That is the way to help people take another look at their views so that they can decide what they want to do with it. Exactly. It's to me, the reason I get so excited about it is because it's, it's in a way the opposite or the um, anti-manipulation. It's not manipulation. It should be. It's, it, well, think about it. Right? Like, it I mean, I, I've seen instances where like family members – themselves we you know, we at the at the, the park and the, the little toddler was running and started going up some stairs and and the parent yelling don't go up there there's a monster there like what a way to just stifle you know critical thinking and and just coercing somebody into into acting the way that you want them to do yes uh yeah that's that's we don't want to do that i mean think about how like think about the what are, what are your goals? And if your goal is to really help them reflect and maybe reconsider the, their position, if you trick them to, into doing it or trick them to changing their mind, how long is that going to stick anyways? And why on earth would they ever want to talk with you again if you had done that? Exactly. So, I mean, this is like, this is the long-term solution. And I say long-term because it's not an easy thing, especially when somebody is really involved in it. Um, it's part of their identity. They're going to all the meetings, just mentioning it. You know, you start feeling the tension rise in the room. You you really kind of have to to go slow and let them be in control. Like, would you mind if I asked you a couple questions about this this view that you have? That's right. You know, and this maybe is ask one this, or two questions, and that's it. Well, and and see, and this is exactly the setup for. And it's just funny how these parallel. I'm not saying that this is purposeful. It's just so interesting to me how this parallels what we try to do in a um, in an intervention setting, where it's not like you know when you're dealing with cult members, you're dealing with somebody who has very strong beliefs. They're very committed. 
And you can't take that apart by attacking it. I've said this, you know, thousands of times, right? You can't argue, yell at, antagonize somebody out of a belief. But you can get them to talk about it in such a way that they start examining it more closely. And if the, and that is street epistemology, and yet that's also what we do when we're dealing with cult members. And that's yeah, just I, why I always talk about it. it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint. You're gonna it's not a one and done. You're gonna this yeah. is this is probably gonna take a little while, and you gotta really settle in, calm down, give yourself space and time. And give this person space and time because it, they didn't settle on a cult mindset or an ideological mindset or a cultural war value mindset in an hour or a day or two or three. They, it took a long time for them to settle into that belief. Deconstructing it and taking it apart is going to take some time. It'll take some time and they're, they're invested in it. Like there, yeah. there's a sunk cost. There, 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 well, there's a cost to even examine the belief, and of course, there's a cost to uh, to lower your confidence in the truth of it, mm-hmm. and there's a cost to completely abandon it because of all the trappings that come with the beliefs. It 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 opens you up to to a tribe that that you feel safe in and you belong, and that's yeah, it's 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 very challenging. Yes, people have these beliefs for 20, 30, 50, 70 years. And I might only have five, 10 minutes with them. There's only so much you can do, but my goodness, if, if we, if, if we could only teach these concepts about carefully considering our positions and not being so tied to them at a a younger age, I think the problem would be solved, but we, we're starting sort of in the middle. Let's, let's teach people who are, you know, college aged and older, and maybe we can start backfilling and going, going to some of the younger folks, but that's right. Yeah. We're, we're, we're eager to get, get these tools simplified and made available and normalize them in the culture. And that, I mean, just hopefully Twitter is not indicative of the culture. The more I, the more I read Twitter and the more I step back from it because of all the developments that are happening over there, it's like, why am I even on this platform? Yep. And I'm starting to wonder that, you know, is this really a truly a representation of what's happening out there? But regardless, uh, it's, a, it's a good tool, whether you're dug into the whole culture, culture war thing or it's your mom who, you know, sending money off to a, a fortune teller because she's convinced that she's getting wonderful advice because of it. It's just it's it's a good all around purpose tool. That's right. And it's a person and it's a tool that requires I, I really think I mean, tell me if you agree. I think you will. But it, it's a tool that requires patience. It's, you know, you can't rush somebody through a street epistemology session or it's one of the worst things you could do. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, when I, when I look back, like I have videos on my channel where I whip out a timer yeah. to set it for five minutes because <laughs> I, that was advice that I got, which in hindsight, it probably wasn't the best advice. And fortunately, mo- most people enjoyed the talk. They completely ignored the timer. It mm-hmm. was good for getting people to stop, but you can't rush it. Um, there's only so much you can do and you can very quickly overwhelm somebody with even just one question, like. How do you define karma? You think karma is real. That could be a profound question. And I've even had, I have it on video where, where a young guy, as he was defining the word karma, which he believed to hundred percent confidence that it was true by the end of the time, defin- by the end of his attempt to define it, he realized that it was silly. He's like, I don't even believe that. Uh, but that, that's, those are rare. Most times people 
are heavily invested in it and it takes a long time for them to do the processing. That's right. And they may not be on board with a lot of people aren't comfortable thinking about or, or even considering that their deeply held beliefs aren't true because the cost is too high. That's right. Uh, it, it takes a special kind of person to do it. And I think it takes a special kind of person to utilize the tool with somebody where you can be sensitive to that because sometimes I, I'll end my conversation if it becomes apparent that they are highly dependent on it or they would harm themselves or other people. I think that those are rare situations. Those are probably the exception rather than the rule, but. No, but it happens. Oh, no? it, it can happen. It absolutely. absolutely can happen. I mean, if yeah. somebody's God belief was their pillar or their foundation for staying sober or you yeah. know, keeping out of criminality or something, why would, right. why would you take that away from them? That would be the silliest thing in the, th- in the world to do. The, you know, it's not harmful to them. Right. So, no. but the conversation doesn't have to end. I think a lot of people think, oh my gosh, yep. They, they would go back to alcoholism if they didn't think Jesus was real. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, you can have a broader discussion, set aside the mm-hmm. claim and, mm-hmm. and go for a, 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 explore something else. Like, you know, how do you think people who don't believe in a higher power were able to get over their alcoholism? What do you think they did instead? Mm-hmm. And now you're just broadly exploring other options and you can pay close attention to see what they think about that. They, they may still brush it off and say, there's no way that I can do it, but you can have broader discussions about that where you're not even talking about the topic and it still has implications for the beliefs that they hold, that's but you're right. doing it in a safer way. Exactly. And, I, and, and that's probably the best that you can do. Yeah, no, it's, and it's always consulting the person and their understanding, their viewpoints, their ideas about things. And I believe that's, you know, because I saw the five minute timer thing as a way, as a, um, as a way of making it safer for the person to talk to you because they knew they were only committing five minutes. And yeah. then they get so interested in that five minutes, they want to keep going. That's what I saw over and over again in your talks right. on that. So I don't know that it was wasted effort, but it was interesting to watch that phenomenon over, even have occur. People, you know? Yeah, people are like, oh, five minutes, no problem. I did have a, one a lady said, well, I can't do five minutes, but I can do three. Yeah. Okay, okay. But yes, what usually happens is they forget about the timer after it beeps or even my later years when I was doing it, I would unintentionally forget to set the timer. <laughs> so there wasn't even a countdown happening. And and it wasn't until like somebody pointed it out in, in one of the videos, like you're not even setting the timer. I didn't realize, but it's like, it's, it's, it's not even relevant. No. Um, if I were to go out and do it these days, I wouldn't even mention the time. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I yeah. thought it, it was an interesting device to get them into the conversation, but it, but it, it was, is. but it was so, common that it would just keep going i mean you'd have a you'd start you'd you'd start the video you'd start the five minute timer 30 minutes later the video ends right and you're like oh wow this person really got into it and it would happen over and over again and i have a i have an idea as to why which i wanted to run past you because you've been doing since we last spoke you know you and and others were really digging into the theory and sort of fundamental reasoning behind why this stuff works and what you're really doing in taking this stuff apart for people to kind of get the anatomy of it, right? What makes this work? And I think mm-hmm. my take is that um, it is that you are talking on things that people's emotional needs are all wrapped up in. 
You know, we have emotional needs. Not, all, not everybody recognizes that, but we do. You know, you can categorize mm-hmm. them. There's different systems to use for doing it. But the bottom line is it's not a rational thing. It's an emotional thing. It satisfies, it brings comfort, it brings warmth, it brings good feeling. For some reason, the person emotionally needs this to be true. And, the, and I think that a lot of, this isn't true for all beliefs, of course, but for a great many of them. And I think that it has to do with that comfort or that support or that future hope that, you know, hope is a big thing. And that's the sort of thing that you're threading around when you're discussing taking this from somebody or deconstructing it. They could lose that emotional support. And that is what you're sort of navigating through is they're having to sort of rework their emotional wiring on it too. It's not just the logic of the thought that is being challenged. It's their emotional feelings about it. Having said all that, that's my idea. What do you think about that? I think that's that's pretty close. Um, okay. You you sort of hinted at what we're what we're doing now, like or what we've been doing when when we last met. Yeah, and that is trying to wrap our our minds around what exactly is this thing. Like we've read books on it, we've had countless conversations, we've we've met with people all over the world, we've had interviews like this where we're really intently being asked what this thing is. So we've been working and putting this course together. And in a nutshell, street epistemology is sort of a, it's a mix of psychological um, techniques, I suppose, and philosophy. Mm-hmm. There's, if you, if you think about a typical SE conversation, it kind of models the scientific method, but we're cognizant of the pitfalls that the human mind will uh, spring on itself to protect itself from having to uh, experience any trauma, I suppose, <laughs> maybe. Mm. Uh, we, we're very good at protecting ourselves from our own views. And SE, street epistemology, is so good at, at in a very calm, rational, scientific way, walking through somebody's reasoning, but being cognizant of all those different landmines that are along the way. Mm. And that's, that, that is just such a, such a wonderful thing. There are, when you start peeling back the layers and, and we're not interested so much as the what, like the claim that the person is making, I think the election is stolen. Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that we're interested in the reasoning and part of the reasoning in many cases is not evidence. Mm-hmm. It's because they think, well, because deep down it meets a psychological need. <laughs> I need to think yep. it makes me feel good to think that there's this cabal that's out there that did it, or there's, um, there's a cabal that's out there that is restructuring all these, these districts. There's different ways of thinking about how the election is stolen. Right. Yep. So it could be a wide, who knows, but yes, at the heart of it, it's almost always psychosocial motivations and being cognizant of that when you're engaging in these conversations is huge because you can learn to recognize them and address them and with your conversation partner and with them circumvent them. So they're not being tripped up by their own emotions and they're rationally thinking about how they've reasoned to their conclusion. And that is dynamite. That is dynamite. Whether, whether somebody is stuck in a cult or you just happen to acquire some belief along the way and and you're just wondering yourself, why did I, why do I think that? Like, how did that ever come along or anything else in between? I yeah. think those psychosocial needs, as you put it, which I've called emotional needs, 
are, um, I, I think that's absolutely crucial to understand. It's not necessarily like you have to understand that, but I think as a street epistemologist, it's the sort of thing you'd really want to be aware of because you because that is what you're tackling, and people could confuse you if you think this is just an uh, uh, just this only exists at the at the plane of of ideas and rationality. And I think I think people might be surprised and confused by some of the reactions they get if they don't realize we're actually touching on deeper things than just thinking or thoughts. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one major sticking point you'll see, and it, it, it's a recurring theme in every conversation that you'll have and any SE conversation that you observe, and that is how the person views the word true or the word truth. Mm. And a lot of people, a lot of people, well, we, we navigate the world as if we do value truth, truth. Because mm-hmm. we put our seatbelt on when we get into our car and we're, we're normally pretty rational. If someone were to knock on my door right now and ask me for 20 bucks, our, the skepticism would, would creep in. Mm-hmm. But there are certain beliefs, especially when they're tied to our identity and we, we, we find community with them. We're part of their tribe. Um, we're very good about making exceptions for how we view the word truth. A lot of people will say, you know, I guess when it really comes down to it, with regards to this belief, it's not so important to me whether it's actually true or not. And a lot of people really lean into this where, in fact, that's that's what generated the whole tic-tac test where it became so much of a problem where you, you have a conversation with somebody, you start revealing the reasons that support their confidence in their claim. And then you begin to realize, oh, they don't even value truth. They've it, it's It's more important to them about the pragmatic value that they're getting from the belief mm-hmm. than the belief being true. And if that happens, my advice would be don't start, don't keep questioning why they think the belief is true. You have to have a broader discussion about how they view the word truth. And I think if, if I even remember when I flew out, I don't know, it was five or six years ago and I, I gave a, a talk in your area, mm-hmm. I seem I seem to remember us, us even, even having a really good discussion about truth and the pragmatic, Pragmatic, pragmatic. How do you say that word? Pragmatism. Pragmatism. <laughs> pragmatism Prag- there it is. <laughs> Pragma- pragmatism <laughs> versus accuracy, and I think most people who are drawn to SE probably value accuracy over the pragmatic outcomes that the belief can give. Mm-hmm. And it's a real eye opener when you meet somebody who's like, "No, like it's more important for me to to think to think it's true than." to have good reasons for thinking that it's true. Right. And it, it could be discouraging when somebody really doubles down on it. I've got a, a really great video on my channel. It's one of my favorites. It's with a woman named Maritza. And we have two conversations. And the first talk is all about truth. And she's like, what does it really matter? As long as I'm not harming anybody, as long as I think it's true, what's the big deal? And we talked for, I set my timer for five minutes probably, <laughs> but it went for maybe 25, 30 minutes. And she ended up realizing that, that, that there's some inherent problems with that. And then she comes back for a second talk. And we had just an amazing talk about ghosts at that point. So maybe your viewers can check that out. But, yeah. but uh, well, that, that, that is a hindrance for a lot of people. Well, and, and a lot of, yeah. well yeah, because I'm wondering now about the difference between or, or how, you th- how you would describe this, um, talking about truth there. Um, versus uh, the concept of faith, because I thought I, what that's what came to my mind when you were describing this idea of well, I simply, 
I, I just need this to be true. That because this is true, because I because I believe in this, whether it's true or not, I believe it. And I believe it because it brings me, you know, A, B, C, D, right? Either emotional right. comfort or, you know, a hope in the future or, you know, a, a reason to live or a meaning for my life. It doesn't necessarily mean it has to be true, but it, it fills this role for me. And to me, that starts moving in the direction of, of faith-based thinking rather than truth-based thinking. How, do, how sure. do you see that? Yeah, I think so. Um, most people, by the way, would never verbalize it as concisely of you, as you just did. Mm. Most people, I, I would be really surprised if anyone, if many people in the audience would, would actually verbalize it and say, yeah, I guess when it comes down that this is what usually happens at, at, at the end of a conversation, mm. but most people don't start with, yeah, I don't, it's more important for me to think that it's true and get value from it than it actually being true. Right. Most people don't admit that but right. they do think that that's right and they don't even know that they're doing that so that's right. so that's something I, I wanted to touch on but okay so faith is an interesting word most people define it i mean there's all all sorts of different definitions um faith yeah faith is when when you when you start peeling back how most people are thinking about it mm -hmm. it's it's almost like a get out of jail free card or something like it, I can get a pass for thinking that this is true and I don't need to have any reason for it. That's right. That's essentially what faith is. Now, a lot of people will push back on that and say, no, 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 no. Faith is trust and faith is hope or faith is this and that. Um, if you think about it, if, it, if people think faith is hope, that hope is very close to desire and very desire is very close to want. Mm -hmm. So many times people, yeah, I want it to be true. That's mm -hmm. really what they're saying when they say faith, mm -hmm. but you can't assume that. Mm -hmm. uh, one, one of the most important things we do in street epistemology, when words like that come up is we ask, well, what do you mean by that word? Uh, my definition of faith is, how do I define this? It's been a while since I thought about faith. It's untestable trust. Mm. So like when I sit, a lot of people say, well, you used faith when you sat in your chair, Anthony. Well, no, uh, I have the ability to test to see if my faith or my trust was misplaced by plopping my butt down in this chair. And it seems like it's holding. I have a way to test it. Mm -hmm. But with faith, as most people are using it in the magical sense or in the sense of let me have a past to believe that this is true. Mm -hmm. There's no testing component to it. That's right. Because, they're, they're, because it's untestable trust. They cannot test it in this lifetime. Yes. And they're equating the two, but they're not. That's right. And that's and that's where I was gonna go is because the nuance of this is is kind of important. And it's and I'm glad this came up because it is because I've heard people say, uh, and I would have said, um, faith is um is uh thinking something's true without any reason for having it be true. And mm. it's not and it's not reasonless. It, I, I would push back on that now because I think there are reasons, but the reasons aren't evidence-based. Right. The reasons are emotion-based or emotional yes. needs-based. Right? right. And I think a lot of people will say, well, I, I feel it. I feel yes. that it's true. That's and right. That feeling, that feeling is real. That's and right. one of the, one of the biz biggest mistakes you can make as somebody who's questioning somebody about that type of reasoning is to dismiss the feelings that they're getting from yes. thinking that these things are true. That's you have right. to acknowledge them. 
you have to acknowledge them and, uh, because that's real. That's right. It's the conclusion that they're reaching that's under scrutiny here. It's not the feelings that you're getting from it. And you have to disentangle those and, and help your conversation partner see that you're not, that you're not interested in the emotions. I want to understand the conclusion that you're deriving uh, here that, 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 that this thing is actually true. I'm sure it feels great when you pray and, and you get that one wonderful, warm feeling. But the question really is, is how can we actually tell that that's really doing anything in reality other right. than helping you feel better about yourself? That's right. Um, and sometimes like, that's pretty blunt. I don't know if I would ever use that kind of direct blunt wording. Uh, it depends. You, you have to meet your conversation partner where you're at. You might actually meet somebody who would value that type of directness. Uh, some people might be threatened by it, though. Oh no, big time! Especially when feelings are involved. This is this is that this is the sort of um, balancing act is is navigating that path because. But I think it's really important for people doing street epistemology to recognize and understand these nuances. And this is why I think all your research and work on this and codification of it is so important because, yeah, you can just go, oh, it's asking people questions about their beliefs. Great, let's go. And you'll learn eventually by doing that, but you're gonna, you know, you're gonna probably learn by getting punched in the face a couple times if, you, if you're insensitive to the fact that people, that, that the concept of truth as we've gone over for most, for not most maybe, but for an awful lot of people, or in certain areas of, of most people's lives, I think we can I think we're on safe territory saying that. There are commitments they make to truth for no other reason than it gives them hope, comfort, feel, you know, meaning or purpose. Sure. Or yeah. community, feelings of community. This is what cults are all about. Mm -hmm. Right? Why invest so heavily in the emotional need for this group? Because it fulfills these emotional needs. And these are not descriptions or, or words that the cult member or the believer is going to use. So it's up to the person, the interlocutor, this, the, the questioner, to understand this. That this is what they're looking at. This is what they're talking to. Is They're talking to a faith-based truth. And yeah, and that's why I think right? it, it, takes, it takes practice to put yourself in the mindset where you can utilize an approach like this yeah. where you yourself aren't getting triggered by what they're saying yeah stay in this inquisitive mindset yes and you know just remind yourself like what what, are, what am i trying to do here i'm trying to help them reconsider things maybe broadly speaking yep and you just have to remind yourself of what what aids in that process and what doesn't and it, you said something earlier i don't remember exactly what it was but i wanted to mention yeah we have lots of anecdotal examples of people using this from around the world in different cultural settings, different ages, online versus in person, asynchronous versus synchronous, you name it. But we don't have any studies specifically on street epistemology. And I'm proud to say that we've been working with a researcher for almost a year, designing a study to isolate. What is that thing about street epistemology that, that changes the dynamic? It's, and it's more than just being civil and using mm -hmm. active listening and all this other stuff. It's the focus of your questions. I'm not focused on what you think is true. I'm focused on how you concluded that you have good reasoning for thinking that that's true. And go. that's the big difference. And I think we've isolated that component of it and we're close to running a pilot and then getting peer re board review and then actually doing a study, ideally with people who have never even heard of street epistemology, run them through this, compare it to a control 
and see if this thing works. Yeah. And it will be awesome. As a critical thinker and skeptic myself, I want data. And we're going to get a buttload of data that I think will be helpful for this study and anyone else that wants to come in and do subsequent studies. And I think that that's a really important thing. We need to be able to back up all the stuff that we're saying with more than just our own personal anecdotes and and those types of things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it takes all this time and practice and work and codification of it to break it down to these elements and figure out Dude, what are we looking at? I mean, people, so I've, I stopped uploading videos around 2020, like February, 2020, when people were like grumblings about shutting the campus down because of COVID. I was like, okay, I'm gonna stop. And then right around that time, we started working on the course. And I'm working with subject matter experts in street epistemology, essentially. They, 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 they sort of started the way I did. They maybe read a book or watched a video, started having conversations, learning, community, building, talking to experts like yourself and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, just, and we're, we're pulling all that stuff together. And that effort, or you know, ever since we started doing that, has been so valuable. We're learning so much. And the cool thing is we record every meeting that we have. And if you want to get a sense for how often we're meeting on these things, just go to streetepistemology.com and there's a calendar and you can see the different course meetings that we've had. We'll meet for two hours and we have amazing discussions about, well, what does it mean to have informed consent on these things? Mm. Um, what is the real reason check? So like somebody gives a reason for thinking something is true. Um, how do we best double check to make sure that that really is the reason? And what, what is confidence exactly? Is it bravado or is it something else? You know, we just have these wonderful, deep conversations that are really helping us understand what it is we're doing and more importantly, simplifying it so that we can teach people. And these, these modules that we're putting together, they're, when we first wrote them, like I, I think module one was 80 pages and now it's down to like 16 or something. We've learned even how to become better at teaching it in, in sort of a course environment and we have experts coming in to help us with that. It's just been great. And that I don't think that we would have been as far along in our understanding of SE if I had just continued going out and having conversations and uploading them like I've been doing. Right, right, right. It's been awesome. No, this has been an actual research project. And, and, and I think you're absolutely right. It's not just a matter of going out and doing, 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 but it's coming back and breaking that down and deconstructing, you know, what's the anatomy of this? What works? What didn't work? Why did this work? And what are the different responses you get? And how do people approach this? And, you know, I imagine you could probably start creating um, certain categories or classifications for how people cooperate or don't or look like they cooperate, but they're not, you know, there could be a lot of different scenarios, but I think most people probably are cooperative and very invested and interested in the, in the process as much as the epistemologist is, but it we might do have be some pushback. You know, I think yeah. there are some people that, that don't like what they're doing or they, they equate it almost like a knee jerk reaction to, um, to sea lining where you're just asking question after question to sort of needle and annoy people. Oh, right. You ever hear that term? Yes. Yeah. We talked about that term at one point, but yeah. Yeah. Like, and also I think when you watch somebody who has a belief that you have struggle to justify to their, to themselves yep. and you also share that belief, it could be tough and you could, it could leave you with a sour taste in your mouth about the process that you're watching unfold. But I think that that's, that's unfortunate. And it's one of the reasons why I encourage people to upload videos where they're having these conversations and using street epistemology on a variety of different topics. So people aren't so focused on the claim. 
Yeah, you know? exactly. We, we get really tied up with these claims to the point where they can interfere with us learning a better way of talking about these views. Right. Well, I think that's where, um, I think that is, pardon me, where, um, how do I put this? Well, I just think it's, I think it's really vital to understand the whole process. And I think the best efforts or use of this thing are when they come from a place of informed, oh yeah, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. It's not just bungle, bungle, fumble, fumble through the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, more that you can reveal, the better. It could backfire because if I say, yeah, I'd like to ask you questions to challenge how you're reasoning about this thing. That could be really, that, that could be a slap to the face to a lot of people. Well, yeah. Uh, you, yeah, like, what do you mean you're going to, you don't think that this is true? How could you be a good person if you didn't think that this was true? So you never know. I've even had people say, you know, get behind me, Satan, when I've explained <laughs> that I want to ask them questions. Wow. It's, it's, it's quite something. Wow. I was, you have to meet, you have to meet people where they're at. Well, for sure you do. And that's, there are exercises. I, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to even bring this up. But at the same time, I kind of I kind of want to because I think that it has some degree of um, of use. Um, You're and not gonna do a Scientology test on me, are you? I'm gonna give you a little Scientology. <laughs> uh, I was looking for something I can't find it, so I'm not gonna worry about that right now. But um, you know, one of the things I think about in using this, and and the barriers or problems that come up in using it is um, the fact that some people doing street epistemology or trying to take this on um, have a very hard time just listening to people telling them things that they strongly disagree with. They find it triggering or they find it difficult or they find it you know, upsetting. Of course, but I mean, a street epistemologist or a human who discovers street epistemology and finds value in it and occasionally wants to use it, that's sort of how I define it. <laughs> Street epistemologist, we're, we're susceptible to the same emotions and yeah. egos that our beliefs have, and we have our triggering topics and so forth. Like, yeah, it's 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 very common to see people. Generally, they're newer to SE, but there are. I mean, even today, there there could be a topic where I might struggle to be civil and and curious throughout because. They're saying something that I just find reprehensible or it's challenging to me personally. Mm -hmm. um, we're not robots. We're going to definitely struggle with it. But the important thing is recognizing that it's happening yes. and maybe saying, hey, maybe we should take a break or, or sharing the emotion that you're experiencing. Like, I'm really finding my, my heart is actually racing as I'm listening to this. And, you know, I don't want to. I want to really remain, just talk it out. You can, you can literally talk it out to your conversation partner and they'll probably admire you for it. Yep. And it'll probably help you stay calm. But yeah, struggling with anger or or resentment or frustration is something that that uh, it's it's one of the biggest barriers to being good at SE is your own emotions. Right. I wanted to bring this up because I couldn't help but think back to my Scientology days. And I don't want to bring this up because I'm suggesting this be done, but I just but I just thought it was interesting to me. 
because there's a series of exercises in Scientology called the training routines or TRs. And you might have heard something about this in terms of people sitting in chairs and staring at each other for hours on end and how Scientologists have this glassy-eyed stare they give you all the time, right? And they're always confronting you, you know, very intently by looking at you very intently. And that's not what I'm talking about at all when I'm referring back to TRs here, but there is a drill that is done after you've sat and stared at each other for hours on end, where you will sit and push each other's buttons for hours on end and basically purposefully try to trigger one another. And the way it works is one person has to sit there being the, the student, the learner, who's doing the exercise in order to overcome their own triggers or impulses or button pushing, right? And the other person, the coach, is just sitting there either joking with them, telling them things that are very, very funny, trying to trying to needle them in some fashion. And the person has to just sit there and not react. And if you do react, it's a flunk, right? At flunk, you laughed. And we got to go over it again, right? And maybe the person has to tell the whole joke again or say the, you know, the particular phrase that really gets this guy's goat, right? Or whatever it is you're going to say to this person, um, you know, maybe it's personal to them. Maybe it's personal to something they're sensitive about. Whatever it is, you just keep on it until the person doesn't react to it anymore. And then you move on to something uh, else and something else. What is it, like to extinguish the emotional reaction? Yeah, to it's basically... Exposure therapy? Well, exposure it's, therapy? it's not therapeutic. The idea is that you're training in a Scientology counselor or auditor. This is, how, this is why this is done in Scientology, is to train an auditor in Scientology to be able to deal with hearing literally... Anything that a person could tell them in a, in a session, in an auditing session. So, so this is for the this is this is a training activity that is done in Scientology, so that the auditor can hear a person telling them their most deeply personal, intimate, disgusting details of their sex lives, their past lives, their family life, their domestic life, their work life. Whatever it is, whether it's violent or sexual or abusive or horrible or whatever the experience was, you want a situation where the auditor can hear anything that this person has to tell them. And not react. And not react. Not freak out. Right? Uh -huh. Oh, my God. Your father did what to you? <laughs> right? Like, that's the last thing you want happening in a counseling session. And this is generally not universally true in psychology but it has some applicability you know because you because if your if your therapist is constantly like oh my god you could set up a dynamic where the patient or the, the, the counselee is trying to freak out their therapist right like that that becomes a measure of of progress or something. You, you can get in all kinds of weird dynamics and situations with it. But in Scientology, I'm, I'm probably over explaining this, but it's just used for that purpose. The only reason I bring this up is because I have found having done that for literally hundreds of hours in Scientology, I am not somebody who is immune to being triggered or immune to reacting to things, but I can put on the face Mm -hmm. I have that ability to do that, you know, and it's not a, and it's, and it, and it's not the, the full on 
disassociative thing that it that it, that Scientology will make it. You know that they'll, they'll take it too far, of course, and and create a kind of disassociation, which is very weird and it's a weird experience. But I find myself wondering if there are methods or ways outside of Scientology. <laughs> To try to help people doing street epistemology to not freak out or have those triggering reactions, you know what I'm saying? I guess that's the whole the point of all of my my you know diatribe here. Sure, sure. Do you yeah, guys do anything how- with that or try to address there that is. in any way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I'd like to. I, I could speak to that for sure. Yeah. So that that is a common question, and you'll you'll see it in the comments under my videos. How can you stay so calm? Yes. How are you not reacting to this? Yeah. And that is a deep, deep conversation. At a surface level, I wrote a blog post that is something like how to stay calm and focused when doing street epistemology. And I give some tips. Mm. Um, Stoicism comes to mind. I was, I had the honor of going to Athens, Greece to give a talk on street epistemology at Plato's Academy. Right. And I learned all about Stoicism. So familiarizing yourself with Stoicism and maybe reading a little Marcus Aurelius mm-hmm. could probably go a long way, but nothing is better in my view than practicing, yeah. putting yourself in a position where you can even just watch a video passively by yourself and recognizing when your emotions are starting to rise. Like, what did that person say that upset me and why? And being curious about your own emotional reactions goes a long way. It also helps to like I, I was aware that I was recording myself in these interactions. And later I had a, a second camera shot where I was actually in it. You know, most of the, most of the time, it's just the focus is on my conversation partner. But I started, I started adding myself into the mix when people said, we want to see you. We want to see your reactions to what are, what are being said. Mm-hmm. And me knowing that people would be observing my reactions helped me maintain my reactions. Yeah. Yeah. Now you can pretend that you're being observed and, and more than likely you are. I mean, you're being observed by your conversation partner for one thing, but there's probably other people standing around. Yep. That goes a long way. Uh, pr- you know, providing that you care what other people think to a certain degree, which I do. Um, so that really helped. And uh, like I said, like practice really goes a long way. And I, I would say like, if, if you do find your, yourself getting upset, ask yourself, what, what did they say? Or what is the topic that's being discussed? And maybe that's a topic that you want to set aside. Okay. I get really upset when we start talking about X. So I'm going to practice talking about Y for a little while. And if X comes up, I might, I might bail on the conversation or I might dip my toe in the water a little bit, but just recognizing what is triggering you is, is really key. Yeah. Uh, but this is this is the biggest, and I, I alluded to this earlier. Your ability to control your emotions when you're having these conversations is paramount. Like if you can't do that, if you let yourself get triggered by the topic to the point where you want to show that the other person's wrong now, yeah. like, how dare you do that? You've slipped out of SE mode, and now you're you're in some other. I don't know what I'd call it, argumentative mode or reactionary mode. mode. Yeah. You're, now you're, you're reactive. That's right. And, and managing your own reactance is huge and helping your conversation partner feel like they're, rea- you know, that they don't need to react because you're not, not saying anything controversial. You're asking them about how they're reasoning about things. And if, if you can manage that, that is like, that's probably 50% of it is just being able to control yourself. And that takes time. It takes yeah. time. 
Yeah, it's a thing. And I and I guess I I guess I was slow to come to realize what how much of a thing it is. And it's clear from what you've said here that it's really a thing. Um, because of my own backstory, right? Because I was trained so carefully for so long in how to, you know, be chill in front of somebody when you're talking to them. Um, regardless of how you feel inside. You could be a tornado inside, but it doesn't matter. You don't, you don't get to show that. And, mm-hmm. and that's a unique thing for me, I guess, I, I, I'm seeing. And so that's... I think I, wanna, I, think I would just want to add something to that. Yeah. That it's important, though, that you are authentic in these conversations. You oh, really yeah. should try to be yourself. Absolutely. And if, if this is a triggering topic to you and you disagree with them, it is completely fine to say that. Like, I think you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Or you just have to be aware of, of the reaction. React, you're going to get that reactance again. Yep. You have to be aware of the reactance that you're going to receive if you do reveal it. And I think a lot of people think that if I can't express my true emotions as I'm hearing what's being said, I'm not being true to myself. Right. I'm not being authentic. And I, I understand that argument. Um, my, my view is that you should try to be as authentic as possible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but work on those things. Like uh, I could be really authentic, but I can really struggle to be curious and open-minded about some other point of view. Right. And that's, and that's, that's a real, that's a real struggle that I think a lot of people who are drawn to SE have to deal with. And it's something that I deal with. Like when I look back at my videos, I regret not being more authentic and just being, you know, why was I sort of interviewing them? Why didn't I just have a conversation like we're having? Mm. Um, There's some regret, but I'm, I'm optimistic that the newer people who are, there's constantly people coming into SE and we're getting new approaches. That would be the thing that I would, I would advise people to do is like, yeah, it's important to not get triggered and, and to not let your emotions control you, but you also don't want to be fake. Oh, you no. can be real. You can be real and genuine and authentic and still ask good questions. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I hope I wasn't coming across as though I was suggesting that no, we should be fake no, about it. No, you, you weren't. But yeah. I think I think there is a contingent in the SE community even that maybe struggles with that. Well, I think it's a, I I think it's an interesting struggle because you really have to keep purpose in mind as terms. What is the purpose of the activity? And the purpose of a street epistemology interview is not for you to go on and on about your beliefs. It's to inquire about theirs. So it's an interesting point that, you know, I feel I'm not being myself if I'm not saying what's on my mind. Well, fair enough, but there's also appropriateness and, you know, time and place, you know, for, mm-hmm. for what you're thinking. And sometimes it's just not appropriate to the conversation. If you're trying to accomplish X, you know, there's there's ways of getting there. And maybe that might not necessarily be the right way to get there in this moment is for you to mouth off about your contrary beliefs to this person's ideas. So I think judgment yeah. enters into this, too. Judgment enters into it and you can partition it. You can say, okay, like, you know, for the next 10 minutes, I'd love to just ask you questions about how you're reasoning to your conclusion. And if it gets too overwhelming, let me know. Is that cool? Sure. Yeah, Yeah. let's go. And then at the end of the 10 minutes, you can ask them or invite them to ask you questions in return where you now have an opportunity. 
to share your view and get that off your chest. And, yeah. Oh, okay. I think I, I disagree. I, I don't think the election was stolen. I think there, I think it was, this was presented to the courts here. And I think that there's the evidence that was presented was not sufficient to shift. You can review, you can reveal your position and hopefully the way that you carried yourself when you were asking them questions will be mirrored back in return. Right. They'll, they'll, they'll give you time to explain. They won't cut you off or interrupt you. They'll, they'll listen. They'll sincerely, sincerely consider what it is you're saying to them. Yeah. So there's, there, there's a time and the place. And there's, if you do SE right, in fact, uh, one of my colleagues, Mark Solomon of the Being Reasonable podcast, I hope you don't mind the plug, but one of his gauges of a good, <laughs> of a mind. good, okay, you edit it out if you don't. Um, one, one, one of his gauges of a good SE talk is if his conversation partner starts asking him questions about his view. Mm. And that is your opportunity to give your position. You can be as authentic as possible. So there's a time and a place and you can absolutely do it. Yeah, fair enough. I could also see such scenarios devolving into debate very quickly as well. If, can. if, if both people kind of forget what they're doing there. It can. So, it can. so there's Absolutely. a danger there, right? So it's there, and, there's a risk. Yeah. So there's a risk there. That's right. So it's so it really is very dependent on the attitude. Again, it really comes down to attitude and uh, you know purpose and what you're doing it for and what you hope to accomplish, as to right. you know what's going to inform your behavior during the interview. I want people to be out their authentic selves. I, I I would never want anything else. But I also know, you know, that there's just the appropriateness of the moment and, and, and trying to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. Do you, here's the question somebody asked me, do you see street epistemology as a substitute for cult exit counseling? Are the two techniques equivalent? I've been thinking about this for some time now. There is obviously some overlap in that both methods involve questions to stimulate critical thinking about fervent belief. But there are some fundamental, if subtle, distinctions. As I understand it, cult exit counseling has a basis in psychotherapy, while street epistemology is more grounded in philosophy. Some cult exit counselors have raised concerns. Oh, not therapists, cult exit counselors have, I don't know who, have raised concerns that street epistemology is not therapeutic, especially when applied to a victim of traumatic abuse like most ex-cult members. I'd like to know what you think. And what I said was that um, uh, street epistemology is not trying to be therapeutic. It's not even pretending to be that. It's not that at all. It's, it's a method of inquiry, and I described it like we've been talking about it today. Um, yeah. And I said it's very, very useful, and the methodology is very akin to what we do in interventions, but it's not the same thing at all as as post-cult exit counseling, which is more in the therapeutic direction, you know? So I'm not familiar with post-cult post exiting, although when I look at the materials that are being produced by people in that space... And the techniques that they're talking about, there is some similarity. And as I mentioned earlier, SE is a mix of philosophy and psychology. Mm -hmm. We're we're cognizant of it, but I wouldn't call it therapeutic. Right. When we you mentioned that we were talking about the course a little bit, we actually brought in a couple of people. And in fact, we have a member on the team who is a family psychologist, something like that. And we we were wondering ourselves, how what are the similarities and differences here? And one of the major differences that we've noticed, and, and this is why I would say it's SE is not therapeutic, mm -hmm. is that we're concerned with how you've decided that you have a good reason for thinking something is true to some degree of confidence. Mm -hmm. 
And if you give a reason, we're going to interrogate the quality of that reason with you. And the result of that might be you realizing that it's not a good reason. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that is exactly what happens in therapy. My understanding from talking to therapists is that, and maybe this is controversial, or maybe this is on the, on the nose. I don't know that a therapist will, will help you reveal solutions that you think you need to deal with a hardship and to fix your problem as I understand it. Mm -hmm. And maybe they're not as concerned about that solution being grounded in reality. As long as it serves your need and helps you, awesome. That's my understanding about therapy. And maybe that's not it. Maybe again. No, I think that's fairly I think that's a fairly accurate rendition from a from an objective point of view. Because you you know, therapy is not about trying to dictate or tell somebody how to live their life. That's what the cult was doing. And what you're trying to do is return the person's power of choice, willingness, uh, point, you know, their own point of view, their own identification of their own self-image, not the cult image that was laid over that. Those are the things you're trying to sort of get the person to sort of strip down or take off or remove from themselves as you deal with them in a post-cult situation. And that's therapy. And there's lots and lots of approaches to it from art therapy to, to talk therapy to emotion-focused therapy to trauma-focused therapy. There's a lot of approaches to dealing with the residue and, and, and consequences of cults and cult thinking. Um, and none of that would be classified as or look anything like street epistemology. Okay. Right? And street epistemology would be useful as a technique of interrogating belief and understanding of things and could be very useful in that setting, but only as part of a bigger picture. It's not designed to be therapeutic. And, and you could introduce it to a therapy scenario and use and have and i think it could have utility in certain circumstances absolutely but it's yeah. not a therapy modality and i think that there's a very clear divide between those two things i think that's it and like in street epistemology we want to help our conversation partner recognize to their own satisfaction if it's the case that their reason isn't solid or as, right. as high of a quality as they think that it is. Right. And there's implications for that discovery that could be problematic for the person. So like, I think in SE, we, we tend to err more on the side of accuracy and truth as opposed to pragmatism and serviceability or yeah. the, the usefulness that I get from the belief. Right. And maybe that, maybe that's a key distinction there. Well, it could um, be because, because uh, it could well be, and it would never ever be a psychologist place or a therapist place to counter or deny a person. If they come in one day and say, I'm feeling so much better now because I found a new belief system. Right regardless of whether it's true or not. And yeah. that's, that's the difference. I think, I think the S year, the S year is usually motivated by like a, a, a strong <laughs> desire to align their beliefs and hopefully the beliefs of the people around them with the accuracy of the situation. That's right. And I think there's, there's a lot more leeway once you get more into the, to the psychotherapy route or the, the, the therapy route, the therapeutic route. Very much Can so. I just add, Very much so. Um, it's interesting to note, though, that I've received probably five to 10 emails over the years from therapists 
who have stumbled across SE videos who have said, that's amazing. I love it. And I started to incorporate it into my practice. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what to make of that. Well, like I said, I think it can be utilized in select circumstances in a targeted way to assist a person to understand why they think or act the way they do. Maybe so. Yeah. I mean, that's, there's that's no the question. point of it. That, that's the, that's the purpose of it. Exactly. So I can see the value of it. I just, I just wonder, yeah, I, I just wonder at what, what's their cutoff, you know, at what point would they, would they not want to interrogate their patient's beliefs? I guess they would probably leave it up to the patient. That, that's yeah. what we would do with somebody on the street or a family member or friend. That's right. How be, is this going? Can I right. ask you more questions? Is this, be, is this, is this disturbing to you? We can take a break. Uh, ask me questions in return. That's right. Um, we do try to be cognizant of the of the impact that it can have because we're we're out for we want people to be rational, critical thinkers because we think it'll be better for society. Well, that and, is and, that is the global goal driving this whole project. That's right. And and there are people out there who don't find that quite as important. And well, it's interesting views. what people think. It's interesting to me what people think other people think they need, <laughs> you know, and um, and there are very disparate views on this. And that's OK. Different cultures, different education levels, different backgrounds take on these things in different ways. Totally fine. I don't know that there is a one-size-fits-all answer uniformly for all human beings as to how they become their best selves. <laughs> but I think that um, when the context calls for it or it looks appropriate or, you know, fitting to the situation, a therapist would be perfectly in alignment with the patient's needs to utilize this method of inquiry as a way of getting the person to explore their own thinking. That's fine. And, 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 but that, that used in conjunction with other modalities in a therapeutic environment where there are ethical guidelines and boundaries restricting the behavior of the therapist, fine, go for it. Use it there in that context. But let's mm -hmm. not equate that with what you're doing on the street. Right. Different, yeah. different purpose. I do. I do wonder, though, in 10 years, if this keeps growing at the rate that it seems to be growing and mm -hmm. getting people's attention and we're refining it, this is a worldwide community effort where we analyze videos, we break down what we're doing, we, we spend like the course, we, we talk about what we're doing. I do wonder if, at some point if we will reach the stage where there needs to be some sort of oversight or I don't know, because mm -hmm. right now... A large part of the growth that you're seeing in SE is because there's no ethical body governing what it is that we're doing. We can do right. whatever we want and we can throw it up against the community and see what sticks. And well, we're getting pushback on this. Maybe we need to tweak that. So there is, in a way, I guess there is a community of people, but it's not like an official thing. We can't get get a citation to stop doing SE or anything. Anybody can do pretty much whatever they want. But that freedom has led to so much experimentation. Mm -hmm. It's made SE better. And as that, it that should. Has made, yeah. But I do wonder, would, would we ever reach a point where there's some sort of ethical ceiling that we hit? Probably. We're, we're, 
Probably. Yeah, maybe. D- dealing with what you're dealing with, I think that it would be a fairly natural evolution to develop some sort of ethics code or guidelines for street epistemologists in the we same way. We do have way, one in the course. Yeah, well, in the same way that there are ethical codes and guidelines put down by licensing groups or the APA or the AMA for, right. you know, for the healing but, professions. Sure, and, and we're talking, we, ha- we have a module, it's the third module in the course. So module one is what is street epistemology? Module two, why use it? What are the goals? Module three, the ethical considerations where we talk about the ethics that we think, based on our experience, you should probably have when you attempt to use this approach with somebody. Yeah. But but who enforces it? Like, do, I can't do it. I mean, we have a nonprofit organization that's, that's intent on getting these tools into people's hands. But let's say there was an infraction out there of some kind. Like, well, whose responsibility is it to tap that person on the shoulder and say, don't do that anymore? Right. I don't know. No, it's actually, you'd have to set up uh, a more formal structure and framework with uh, licensing bodies or certifications or something like that. I, um, those are bigger questions than they're, they're above my pay grade right now. <laughs> but I, what I'll tell you what, though, is I'm very, very happy to see, and I think the audience should acknowledge the fact that, you know, you guys are taking these questions on very seriously this early on in the whole process. I mean, that's a, oh that's a big well, feather in your cap, uh, just to let you know, because this is, a, this is potentially a set of tools that could be utilized by bad actors in a manipulative way. And so, you know, putting something there saying, don't do that, is in itself a good thing, you know? I think it helps to have something out there, even if you can't enforce it. We do have it in writing that the two ethical principles to adhere to, this is chapter, this is module three, is being honest and attempting to promote well-being. Yes. And if you have those as your groundings, you're going to probably be in good shape. Yep. Yeah. So because it's hard, it's it's hard to be too transparent. (laughs) So if you're just being transparent with what you're doing and you're coming at it from a point of view of goodwill or, or good intent, it, it should work out. I think it puts you, yeah, it, it helps make it more ethical the more you reveal about what you're up to. Right. And checking in, that, that idea of informed consent goes a long way. That's right. And being willing to have them ask you questions in return. If you all do, and, they're, and they're, hopefully they're in control and they know what you're up to and they're a participant. You're collaborating with them. You're not That's doing right. this on them. You're doing this with them. Exactly. And as long as you have that, I think you're, you're in good shape. And we've, we've recognized this early on, like when I started going out and this is post street preachers, cause I was still arguing with them and like, that wasn't good, but like very early on, when you start asking people to explain how they've reasoned to their conclusion and they feel safe and they're revealing these things and you're asking these questions and it, you do notice the destabilizing impact that it could be having on their confidence in their conclusion mm-hmm. and all the trappings that come with it, right? Like, oh, maybe I need to leave this tribe now because I don't think that this is true. Like, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you're having that conversation with somebody and you can see, and they, they, they'll even verbalize the difficulty, it dawns on you very quickly that there's something profound something very profound could happen during these talks and there's a responsibility that you have as a practitioner. I am so glad you just said that because it's the only thing that I've ever heard that is actually parallel with or akin to something that uh, a very experienced cult interventionist told me many years ago. 
that I took to heart and have, and, have, and, have, and have kept close to myself ever since because it was such a powerful statement. He said, look, there's something you have to understand about going out and doing an intervention with somebody. And you're, and you're going to have to get your head around this, right? Which is that you are taking it upon yourself to go change this other person's life. Right now, they're happy with their life. And you're taking it upon yourself to go out and change that person's mind in an incredibly significant way. And you got to be responsible for what you're doing. It's not a it's not a half-assed operation going and doing a cult intervention with somebody, and you have to be responsible for what the effect you're trying to create on this person's life. And 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 that and that responsibility starts with acknowledging what you're actually doing. Yes, and being honest you know? with yourself and yes, with them. That's right. <laughs> because it's going it's going to get out anyways through your questions about exactly. what you're up to so you might as well just be straight with people that's right we, we we talk about the steps of se like identify the claim and get to the reasons and uncover how they determine that's the epistemology part how did you determine that that's a good reason and there's all sorts of steps but there's a step zero that don't and and david mcraney mentions this in his book and i'm so glad that he mentions it step zero is really asking yourself what am i trying to do here and being honest with yourself and mm-hmm. and having that grounding and if you've got that then the rest of it should be good to go exactly because if you think what you're about to do is wrong is morally challenging is somehow a dilemma for you then you shouldn't be doing it mm-hmm. because it's not the, you're not in the right headspace for it for one and two you think it's wrong well yeah. th- don't go doing things to other people that you think is wrong you know, I mean, it's kind of like one of those sort of duh things, but it, sometimes it needs to be said out loud because yeah. this is one of the things in doing an intervention that you have to get the whole family or the people who are involved. Everybody's got to be on the same page. And and every time I've been involved yeah. in some intervention situation where it didn't work out, almost uniformly, it was because everybody wasn't on the same page before we even got started. Interesting. Very Interesting. And, and yeah. something to, to keep in mind, you know, is the success of this sort of thing is very dependent on everybody's attitude going into it. And openness, honesty, and transparency are actually key components of a successful intervention. Getting the person into the chair to have the conversation is the hard part. And then once you get them there, then it's an open conversation. It's not trickery and manipulation and kidnapping and beating and forcing anything. That's old school crap. We don't do that anymore. And it, and when you do it now, it's about it. It looks an awful lot like a conversation. It should be, and it should yeah, it be. Should, it should be exactly. It should be. It, it's tough because there there are technical components that you want to hit when you're doing SE, mm-hmm. which can make it seem like it's this technique and it's this thing you do. But like ideally, you're asking questions to truly understand and generate reflection. And allowing them to really take a look at their own views in a, in a critical way. That's that's all it is. And, and that's practically a word-for-word word description of what an intervention conversation is. Yeah, it's interesting. Would you say that, that those are more happening with like, it's like a five-on-one type of thing or a ten-on-one? Are interventions ever a one-on-one? No, no. They, they Ideally, they're one or two-on-one. You don't want to group okay. up on somebody because that creates okay. a whole level of social pressure dynamic that you just don't want in the room. 
Are um, there any videos of know. people doing this? Because it would be fun to do a breakdown video of a cult exiting interview. Yeah, I've never or seen a video of it. An intervention. Yeah, no, let's call it that. Yeah. Because a cult cult exit <laughs> counseling so is is more of a therapeutic thing. Whereas mm -hmm. the intervention is not a therapy process. It's a, literally an intervention, whether it's drugs or cults or alcohol or whatever it is. You know, it's, I would love it's, to watch one. Yeah. And, and those kind of and, and it can be a group thing where you have a number of people, you know, telling the person what's up and what their views are and stuff. But a cult intervention tends to be a little bit different because the nature of the beast is not a substance abuse. It's a thought abuse. It's a psychological abuse at first, mm -hmm. often mm -hmm. followed with sexual and physical abuse. So where so the 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 uh, target of the attack is the person's thinking is their belief set. And you've got to take that apart, but you can never, ever do it successfully, or at least you, you're not going to really have a success rate with it if you're not, if you don't have the person's cooperation. Oh, yeah, yeah. People, you know. people need to be willing to participate. Yes. If they're afraid to do it or they just refuse to do it, you can't force them to do it. Nope. It's not going to happen. No. Nope. They and have to feel safe and trusting. That's right. Um, is there a, like, because I'm, I'm curious. Mm hmm is there a facilitator who sits down with the mom and dad who's sitting down with the son who's in the cult type of thing? Mm -hmm. is, is there a moderator? Is that how, how it usually happens? Yeah, usually that's what the cult expert is hired for, right? Is to oversee okay. the process, educate everybody involved with it so everybody's on the same page. Um, you know, there's, there's different approaches to this that different people have. There's no one uniform methodology but the okay. successful ones i've been involved with or the ones that i've seen that have been um that have been that have gone the way we wanted them to were were an education phase and you know a kind of an agreement let's get everybody on the same page kind of phase and then there's the workout of how do we get this person to sit down with the cult specialist and then there's the actual intervention itself, which can, depending, it's so context specific that there is no general pattern because everybody kind of needs something a little different. Who's, who matters to that person? Who are they going to listen to? Who do they feel safe around? Who do they not feel safe around? Because you don't want to have those people in the room, right? If mom and dad have blown it, then don't have mom and dad in the room. Because right. that's just going to be right. a distraction, you know. That's so interesting. Stuff we, like we've, that. We've been, we've had some recent discussions about what it, would it be like to see an SE moderator between two people who have opposing views, and those two people would be aware that the moderator would be oh, wow. using a street epistemology approach, and we would be encouraging both of the participants to be using a street epistemology approach. I wonder if that would. I'm curious how that might play out, and I'd love to see some examples of that. But yeah. it, it, it's frustrating that there's so many examples of, of street epistemology that are out there, and they're not all perfect. But we we hear about these different modalities, but we never get to see them. I, I would love to see what that looks like. I would love to see a good – a lot of people contrast street epistemology to the Socratic method. Mm. Where are the video examples of the Socratic method? Because I want to see that and contrast it to what we're doing, because right. I think what we're doing is quite different and unique and powerful. But then I hear these, these competing approaches, and it's all still kind of a mystery.
I, I don't know examples. that these. Yeah, I I don't know that these other methods are as formalized or 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 you know documented as what you guys have been doing. So I think some people are just mouthing off a little bit. <laughs> I might put my opinion that's, out that's there. That's always in the back of my mind too. Is like, yeah, uh, what, what are you exactly? What are you, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. You ask somebody to define the Socratic method, and you'll get you'll get ten different answers if you exactly. ask ten people. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, to me, Socratic method is asking questions, right? But um, well, so, but of but course, there are people. They're, they're leading questions, right? Well, yeah. So are you using the Socratic method to teach somebody mm -hmm. something? Or are you asking them questions to truly understand how they're reasoning about things? Uh, maybe it's one of – I've heard both. People say both. Interesting. Know. Because and, uh, my understanding of Socratic method was it was a teaching methodology leading a person to right, a conclusion, but we, which is when different. When we're doing – no, when we're doing street epistemology, I don't want to lead you to my conclusion. Exactly. I want to. I want to see how you got led to yours. That's right. So it's a, so it's a very different thing. Yeah. Even though they most they both might look similar in that there's a lot of questions. Right. You yeah. Know? Maybe to the untrained eye, they're only just noticing the the surface level stuff and That's not right. the import of the questions that are being asked. We don't want to ask leading and loaded questions at all when we're doing SE. Right, because it's going to interfere with the accuracy of their thoughts. Exactly, and I want the the clearest view of how you're reasoning about things. Exactly, yeah, exactly. The whole point is not to argue, debate, you know, get into some back and forth. It's it's it, you know, it's what you said. Speaking of, I'm wondering if now might be a good time for us to sort of demonstrate this because we've never really done yeah. that in our podcasts. Sure. And I'm willing to be a guinea pig, so why don't you go ahead? And we have not set anything up beforehand. This is this is me just throwing this out there. Um, so how do you suggest we go about this? What typically happens is you're sitting with your friends or your family or you're on a bus and somebody just makes an offhanded kind of claim about reality. All right. It could be, it could be a, a moral claim. We should be doing this. It could be a personal preference. Pizza, uh, pe pineapple on pizza is the best thing ever. <laughs> although, although, uh, I mean, why would you want to explore that? Right. It's an opinion. Right. But ideally somebody's making an empirical fact claim about reality and it catches your attention. Like I've never heard that before. That's usually the impetus for an SE type of conversation where, where somebody is making a claim. So if you want to start with a claim, we can do that. And then maybe as we go through, I can explain why I'm asking the questions that I'm asking. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Um, what I'm struggling with right now is what sort of claim could I make that would be a truth claim that might be controversial? Because everything I, I think this. is true makes total sense, right, Anthony? Of course. <laughs> uh, I know you have strong opinions about um, Twitter and Elon Musk and oh God, Paul. yeah. Oh, you want to go to yeah. one of those, man? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Here's a here's a controversial truth claim: is um, social media is um, uh, the way social media is utilized is making people less critical in their thinking. Cool. That's an awesome claim. Okay. Um, I'll I'll probably repeat it back just so that I make sure I understand it. Yep. Uh, the way so the where the, the the direction that social media is heading is problematic for people, and it's actually making them less. Did you say less uh, less of a critical thinker? Yeah, less critical in their thinking is how less I, critical is in how their I thinking. Put it. Okay. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, specifically, the way uh, social media is being utilized, because I don't think it has to be utilized the way that it is. 
Uh-huh. But I think the way it's designed and programmed and coded and put together, and then the way we interact with it creates less critical thinking, not more. Okay. Yeah. And I want to define a couple words. Yep. Uh, critical thinking comes to mind, which yep. is kind of funny that we're defining that. But like, what do you what do you mean? Like, what would you expect to see, or w- what are you seeing that you would say, ah, critical thinking has really declined because of social media because of this? Like, right? What do you mean by critical thinking? I see an increase in tribalism, divisiveness, um, strong, extreme opinions that do not really have what I consider to be a basis in reality, but people cling to them as though they absolutely are true. Um, the election was stolen, vaccines don't work, vaccines cause autism, you know, pseudoscientific nonsense that just spread all over social media. Um, that's what I call a reduction in critical thinking, uh, because I think there's more of a prevalence of that, especially the tribalistic side of this. I think social media has riled us up to become more divided and that that is exacerbating tribal thinking versus what I would call discerning thinking, mm. where people can discern the gray, can mm-hmm. see the details, can see the, the, that, that, that when you dive into the details, things get a little murky. Because from their 200-foot view out at the extreme ends of the spectrums, everything's crystal clear. And I know what yeah. that headspace looks like. I used to live in it 24-7, right? So everything is crystal clear. I've got exactly who the bad guys are, exactly who the good guys are, and everything lines up in my worldview as to the men in black and the men in white, and this is how I'm living my life, right? When mm-hmm. you know more critical thinking people, I think, see the world in different shades of gray, and are not as divided in black and white in their thinking as a result. And I think one of the primary mechanisms or tools that's been utilized that has made this situation worse over the last couple of decades has been social media. Okay. I, yeah, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and I think they pegged like 2015, 2013, 2014 is about, about kind of the time that maybe Facebook started taking off and that type of thing. Um, can we quantify your your level of confidence that that is actually factually true, that things yeah. are getting worse on a scale from zero to 100? Sure. And the reason why I'm asking this for you and your audience is because uh, I'm we're not assessing whether it's true or false. Mm-hmm. We're assessing the degree of confidence by which you think that it's true. So do you think that you can quantify it? Yeah, and it's zero to 100, huh? We can go one to seven or one to well, 10. I, 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 was used to zero, I, was, I was used to zero to 10. Um, and isn't it funny that you make it 100 and suddenly it's a, it's a much more granular scale to me. <laughs> um, the number that comes to mind for me is 73%. <laughs> I'm just pulling that out of nowhere, but... <laughs> Since uh, since okay. we went all the way to 100, I thought, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. I'm about 75, 80. I'll say 80%, actually. I'll put that up to 80% certainty that that's, that that's uh, a, a true thing. Okay. And, and there's a utility to me asking this because it takes mm-hmm. it out of the binary like I just talked about. Now we're on a gradient. Yep. It gives, it gives us permission to move, right? Um, maybe there's a point that you were lower. And maybe there's a point that where you're higher. I don't mm-hmm. know if this fluctuates or not, but mm-hmm. it could. 
And that's, that's, that framing is really important when you're talking with people about it, that it's not this binary, true, false, yes, no. Right. We're talking about this on a, on a gradient. Have there you ever have been higher? Or? There have certainly been times in my life where I was at 100. What moved uh, you down? On this. What moved you down? Um, one, my natural self-doubt, you know, about believing in anything 100%, because that's one of the ways that I've sort of come to um, live my life and, 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 and not counter my own invitations to extremist thinking is not let myself commit fully to anything. So there is that. And there is the just the actual objective fact that I could be completely off base. It could be that the divisiveness of our society has not as much to do with social media as it has to do with news media, or it could be some other form of information dissemination, or it could be something else entirely wrong. Maybe it's an economic issue, not a social issue. Maybe it's, you know, Mm -hmm. who am I to say for sure? Can I be a hundred percent? Nah, there could be other factors at play that I could be wrong about. So I, I try to include that in the thinking, but that's why I put it up to 80 because that's, that's pretty high for me. Okay. So what I'm going to do next is repeat back what I'm hearing so that you can hear it also. So what I'm hearing you say is you're not, you're not fixed at at a hundred. You're, you're, you're not dogmatic on this view. You're Mm -hmm. willing to move and you're almost maybe even a little concerned about being so fixed on a point. Uh, You're Mm -hmm. open to new information and that type of thing, which if I, if I, and I don't normally share my view, but yeah, I, I, I think that that's a good position to be. You should be flexible on those types of things. What do you think it would take to move you down to a 50? Now that we have sort of an 80%, what would you need to see to move you down on the scale? Probably facts, right? Statistics, mostly. Like, for example, you mentioned, um, you know, or just a few minutes ago, 2013, 2014, when Facebook was really taking off. Actually, it was earlier because by 2013 and 14, the rate of uh, suicide in um, teen females was spiking. It was like 2x over where it had been prior to uh, Facebook, Twitter, social media coming on the scene back in, I think it was 2005, 2006 time period. So it was it was already well along by then, according to stats. Cam, uh, I think that was uh, Tristan Harris posted that in the Social Dilemma documentary is where I remember seeing that. Is that one of your markers? The, yeah. That- statistic alone yep that statistic along with the way the algorithms were put together and described by Mm -hmm. those who did it and Mm -hmm. um my knowledge of psychology and my knowledge of extreme beliefs and how people adopt them and cling to them and double down on them um and the the other uh clincher for me is the echo chamber um anatomy of social media the way that social media is is built on echo chambers and the algorithms build echo chambers so that's that's the thinking that led me in that direction gotcha so it's not just that one statistic and i don't want to keep repeating that word yeah i just video but uh there are other factors i guess my question might be if you were to see those numbers decreasing something that would suggest that that self-harm was actually decreasing Mm -hmm. something to suggest that that uh, the algorithms were becoming more open Mm -hmm. and accessible and they weren't quite as 
bad as you suspect that they are mm-hmm. or think that they are currently, do you think that that would impact your confidence? Yeah. I think that I think that I would be responsive to a changing, evolving, progressive situation where mm. it was more dangerous and now maybe they're recognizing that or changes are occurring that are sure. changing those conditions. And I'd be wide open to, and in fact, I desperately want there to be those changes. And I see some changes implemented, which people complain about, which I find hilarious. Um because we, you know, Twitter, for example, takes action or and Facebook as well to decrease the algorithmic uh, impact on your feed and serve you more things that you weren't seeing before. And people's heads explode. <laughs> Why am I seeing all this right wing crap all over my feed? Right. And I had to laugh. I had to laugh when I saw that because I was like. Because they're responding to what we said we wanted, that we didn't want a bunch of echo chambers. And, you know, so it's a really funny social phenomenon to watch people complain about a thing and be in agreement with it, watch it change and watch people complain about the change. I just think that's hilarious, you know. Uh, and when it comes to social media and, and, uh, and how it's utilized, uh, there just doesn't seem to be any secret sauce for people they're going to complain no matter what you do you know okay so i'm going to take a step back and just address you in the audience again about what i'm doing yeah yeah um you said so much awesome stuff there that it would be very tempting for anyone to listen to that and want to chase it right but the important thing there for your audience to notice is that you confirmed that these were the real reasons why you think it Mm mm-hmm because you would move your confidence up if you were presented with evidence to, to the contrary. Yeah. A lot of people, when you ask them, we, we call this the real reason check in street epistemology. Ah. Now, uh, would your confidence shift at all if, if you were provided with that evidence to show that you were wrong or whatever? Yeah. And a lot of people will say, I would be just as confident. And wow. that's such a great way of isolating and saying, okay, now I realize it's not the statistics at all. It might be something else. Now, in your case, it does indeed seem to be the reason. Yeah. So as a, as, a, as a street epistemologist or someone using SE, um, that is very useful to me. So now we, we've got a real reason to explore and st- start disentangling and getting into the specifics of it. Like what specifically would you need to see to be convinced that the algorithms were shifting in a more positive direction? And then we can get into it. And what tends to happen one thing that we tend to notice, and I'm not saying that this is going to happen with you, and I don't know how much further you want to go with the example. Yeah, yeah. But what tends to ha- what tends to happen is we notice that people have a different standard for what they will accept to be convinced that they're this all everything's going to hell in a handbasket basket, and I've got all this evidence. But when it, when it comes to shifting in the opposite direction of your conclusion, suddenly the standard changes. It becomes higher. I now need research studies and I need evidence and you've got to bring in these experts and you're holding me to a higher standard to shift. And that is another good indication that there's a bias there mm. that, that the, what you're pointing to is your reason for thinking that your current position is true um, is, is being, is being biased by your own, by your own desires. Right. Cause there's probably, in other words, are you saying, if I'm understanding you right, are you saying then that, that while you say X, Y, and Z are the reasons for this, you need 
A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P in order to stop believing this. Right. So there's probably more to it than just X, Y, Z. There's probably some emotional component or some underlying bias holding this thing in place. Right. So if we were to keep talking, you might say, you know, yeah, this, this incident happened to me in 2019 where I had this very public spat with somebody and it blew up and it came into my personal life. And, and that might actually be the real driver behind, and I'm not saying that this is the case, but oftentimes it is something like that. Especially if somebody says, yeah, like, um, I've got all this great evidence to be at an 80, but it would really take a lot of evidence. It would take a, a significant amount of evidence to move me down to a 50. That's the indication that there's a bias. You have a bias towards thinking that that's true. And it you would require a high bar to move otherwise. And if that's the case, then we start, we stop talking about algorithms and, and suicide rates and all that stuff. And we start talking about consistency and standards and, 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 uh, if you value truth or not, and these types of things. Oh, that's a great point. That's a great point. Cause I would have, I could easily have been distracted off on that. I would have, I might have missed that point. That's a good one. Yeah. Cause these red herrings, these things become red herrings, the algorithm, the statistics, the, this, the, that, and you're chasing after things that don't have anything to do with why the guy really believes it. Exactly. That's interesting. It reminds me, if I might say, it reminds me of the Ken Ham, Bill Nye debate. Uh, just as an obvious example, right? Where so many people point to that Q&A. Yeah. That is legendary. I, I can't. I've heard that a dozen times. Go ahead and explain it. Well, it's because it, it's such. It's so demonstrative of what you're talking about. You know, they ask at the very end of the debate, Bill Nye, the science guy. They say, "Okay, Bill, you've presented all this stuff about evolution and all that. What would it take to change your mind?" And Bill goes, "Evidence. Show me evidence. I'll change my mind." And they ask Ken Ham, the religious fanatic who built the Ark Encounter and uh, believes the banana is the most ideal thing ever, was designed for humans, uh, which I find hilarious. And they ask him, what would it take to change your mind and the you know, inerrancy of the Bible and all that? And he says, there's nothing. There's nothing that will change my mind. Why am I talking and, to you? And I can... T- so many people that I've encountered being in atheist circles and then yeah. I'm also a volunteer for recovering from religion. So I do the intake interviews for people who want to help others who are stuck in that. And um, they will often mention that incident. I, I hear yeah. that all the time. That was a profound moment that highlights this discrepancy between yeah. what it will change your mind. And, and if, if, if your view won't shift because of evidence, then you're likely dogmatic and that could be a very dangerous position to be in. Exactly. That is literally what I call the definition of an extremist point of view. That's right. it. It's 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 typified right there. In is, fact, there's nothing you can noting. show me that will change that's my mind. That's why that's another util, utility of the of the confidence scale. When someone says 100%, now 100% confidence doesn't mean close-mindedness mm-hmm. but it can be an indicator that's right so once you didn't say 100 which is a relief although i have to say when somebody says 100 it's actually easier in my view to utilize street a street epistemology approach with somebody who is 100 percent convinced because it's it's not that difficult after a couple of questions for people to realize i'm overconfident yeah and maybe 99 is a good and so then there's there's a shift right and right and then then the doors open up and I, yeah. I love the approach because it doesn't matter the claim. I, I would use the same questioning approach of 
what exactly do you mean? And what do you mean by that word? And what's your confidence? And what is your biggest reason? And does that reason contribute to your confidence? And we didn't even get to the third layer, which is how did you, and, and we, we would probably want to isolate one of your reasons. Like mm -hmm. maybe it's the algorithm, maybe it's the statistics. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But the how is the biggest part. That's the, that's the epistemology part of the street part. The street epistemology mm -hmm. is how did you determine that the algorithm is in this current state? Right. How, what are your markers? What are you using to make this determination? Right. And that's usually people don't really think about the how they, they're focused on the what and a little bit on the why, but very little on the how. Right. And that's what we unpack with SE. And that's what leads to the to the honest, genuine, critical reflection that we're looking for. Yep. Yep. And that's where I would, um, yeah, because I could cite my sources and I, and I don't have a problem doing that. And it was interesting because for me, um, this became a self-practice in a way, which I like to share for a moment. Um, you know, I learned about this years and years ago. Met Peter, met you. You know, we even, you know, did workshops on this. I mean, this is a wonderful topic and I, and it's one of the things i'm most enthusiastic about in terms of techniques or practices out there to generate or develop critical thinking skills and i think a, i think a, a natural progression is to start using it in your own mind because when i had to address the topic of faith and belief in myself i had to acknowledge that the only reason i hold any hopes or faith or any ideas of belief in a supernatural or extra you know, physical existence or life beyond is because I want to. I got nothing. I have no reason to think that that's true except for the fact that I want it to be true. And once I realized that, this was years ago, I was okay with it. Suddenly it wasn't a problem that I could have this idea and it could just sit in my head that maybe there's more. And I'm not going to commit to the belief because I don't, I'm not that invested in it. But it's, it's still a possibility in my mind that just sort of sits here. And I have to acknowledge to myself, I got no good reason for believing that. It is 100% because I want to. And it was, and I believe it was, you know, my knowledge and experience with street epistemology and critical thinking that, that kind of lands me there, where I don't have to argue my faith or belief or ideas with anybody because I know there's no reason to, you know. Right. It's an interesting I think thing. We could make a, I think we could make a profound difference in the world if we just taught people how to use this. Yeah. On their own views, and I, while I don't think that you get a higher if you were to interrogate your own reasoning about how you concluded that things are going to hell in the handbasket basket with regards to social media and that sure. type of thing, it probably wouldn't, in all fairness, I don't think it would be as high of a quality inter interrogation as if I were to do it, uh, you know, without the cameras and we were just, I mean, oh, we sure. could really get into sure, it. Sure. Um, but there's still utility in that because yes, it, it changes you fundamentally and you become a much more responsible member of society. And that's, that's huge. So yeah, yeah I, we want as many people to learn this, not just to do it with somebody, but to understand what it is you're doing and think about it the next time you think about one of your deeply held beliefs. Exactly. And that's, I mean, what more can you ask for? I mean, that's, well, that's, that is our tick. 
That's our ticket out of this mess, I think. I, I agree completely. And we'll do street epistemology on that belief, uh, on that claim. But, <laughs> but not today because I agree completely. And, I'm, and, I, and I really do. I, I'm willing to go all the way out on this one. I mean, this is really a hill I'm willing to die on on this one is this, is this methodology is, is so intensely workable and so, so. reasonable. It's so reasonable. It is the most rational thing. I rarely run across things in my world with what I surround myself with all day. And you can imagine what that kind of crap is with cults and abusive, coercive situations and stuff. It's so difficult to find these, these, these lighthouses, these beacons, you know, of like, oh, there's something I can go toward and use and it will work for me and it will help me navigate the world. And that's what street epistemology has meant to me in my life with this, which is why, I, I, you know, we, we have repeating conversations about it. I think that um, it's, it's informed my lack of 100% in almost anything. And I think that's a positive. I know there's a lot of people out there who think 100% commitment is, is what integrity is or what honor is or what firm Virtuous. belief is, right? They yeah. think that that's a positive. For me, having already been through that, I was at 100% with Scientology. 110% for years. I know exactly what that headspace feels like. And then I know exactly what it feels like to lose that certainty and the crashing, crushing defeat that you feel, you know, the, the, it just takes all the wind out of your sails and your entire life is suddenly meaningless. And I, and I realize the only way to prevent that from happening again is don't do that <laughs> because there isn't anything that's worth 100% of you. You know, always hold a little bit back and be willing to ask questions and that's the way you navigate life. And then for me, that's been a really sound principle. You know, you nailed it. And and the thing is, we don't see a lot of that happening. There's there are not a lot of role models out there who are modeling that type of thinking. Yeah. And it's so discouraging that the smartest, not the smartest, the richest, most uh, people that have the loudest megaphones. Yeah. Are are doing everything but that exactly and it's so maddening because they have a real opportunity so i'm just hopeful if we keep at it if we keep getting getting the word out about the approach and showing good examples of it and showing how we're still working on it and we're not entirely you know i'm still i'm not 100 confident that this is the main solution because that's why we're testing it right you know i'm not even i'm not even 100 on on the efficacy of se but oh my gosh like i'm hopeful that somebody with with a, a large pocketbook and a megaphone can really get behind this and give this the exposure that it needs because it is the i think that the, it's it's the only thing that's going to help us out of this nosedive that we're in and it, we don't have a lot of time i agree completely in fact i think we're way past time and uh we are racing at this point you know i mean the the conditions of the world are what they are and um and I don't want to be doom and gloom, and I'm not going to be, because I don't, I'm just not going to live my life that way. But I also want to be cognizant of the fact that there are things going on right now that are very far from ideal. 
And we as human beings and the interactions that we have have everything to do with our quality of life and with our ability to, to solve these problems. And I think this is a methodology that is head and shoulders above uh, almost anything else I can think of out there to help bring that rationality that we need. So, um, so Anthony, I, I cannot uh, support you enough in this. How do others listening now, now that they've heard a little bit of this, seen this, heard us talk about this for a while, where do they find out more about this? How do they connect up with you and this subject? Just search for street epistemology on any platform, whether it's Reddit, Twitter, Facebook, you name it. I put a, a Discord invitation link in the chat, in the Zoom chat here for you. So oh, that great. you can drop that. If you feel like you want to drop that in the uh, in the uh, video description, that would be awesome. Great. I haven't asked me anything coming up. If you want to talk to me directly about anything that I said, uh, the Street Epistemology Discord server of which of which that link, yeah. Oh, that's right. The link that I gave you is for the Discord server. On uh, Saturday, August 5th at 1 p.m. Central, I'll be doing an Ask Me Anything. I also started doing weekly small session gatherings, like an SC, a small, like six people. We meet on a Wednesday evening and you can ask me anything about Street Epistemology. And I end up learning a, a more about the community and some of the challenges that are out there. And it just, it's awesome. Uh, but the, the, the easiest thing is go to streetepistemology.com and you'll find links to communities and resources. And you can even support the nonprofit of which I'm the executive director of Street Epistemology International. We're doing some amazing things like the research project that I talked about. We're in the process of revamping the website and we're doing the main course and we've got all sorts of other little things happening around the world to, to normalize this and to make it make it more commonplace because that's what I think we need to do. Fantastic. Absolutely great. Well, I cannot recommend folks uh, that you connect up with this. Look it up, find out about it, you know, read a book about it, read a read an article about it. Practice it, try it. Give it a shot. You know, see what happens. It, it, yeah. it, it's kind of one of those things that can kind of only help really. It, I mean, it, yeah, you could piss somebody off if you really mess it up, but it, you know, you, you can see that coming I tell and people, pull back. You I, know? I, I tell people your worst SE conversation will never be as bad as your, what, how do I say, like <laughs> your worst argument with somebody. Yes. Or you probably even your best argument with somebody, you're probably going to still have a better talk with your SE if you use an SE approach. And you don't have to do the full, I'm going to spend 20 minutes exhausting how you've reasoned about this. One question, like, how, why, why do you think that? It's just, like, just a great question. Or That's what right. do you think would change your mind on it? Or um, have you ever considered the possibility that you're mistaken on this? Like, just, just asking a question that helps people take a step back and think about things is is a good start. That's right. That's right. There are, and there are lots of them. You know, there's all kinds of situations out there. Then, and an indirect approach sometimes is just absolutely amazing to get people's wheels turning because that's what this is all about. It's not about a frontal assault, it's about getting their engine going, you know? Yes. You know, you remind me there's a, on the SE website, a couple of people have thrown together, we call it the street epistemology survey, and it's about 24 questions. And it's broad questions about how you reason about things. Like, do you think truth is objective? What do you think, what, what constitutes good evidence? And there's just these wonderful broad questions and they're categorized and they can lead to, they're, they're, it's a really good tool if you want to help a loved one or a friend 
mm-hmm. think more critically about how they think about things yeah. without actually talking about any sensitive topic. So that would be a nice a nice thing to to dip your toe into the water on as well. Excellent. Well, again, folks, check it out. Okay, you can only learn and you can only grow from this. So I really, really recommend diving in deep. And uh, and I, and I have never ever been disappointed in our conversations, Anthony, or my experience with this topic. It's just been amazing. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Truly. Absolutely. Thanks for coming, and we'll talk again soon, folks out there. Uh, if you're liking the show, if you're liking the content, if you think this is a show and a channel worth supporting, and I hope you do, um, and if not, then you have to explain to me why in the comments. Uh, but if you do think this is a good thing, then go ahead and throw some love and support my way. There's Venmo, PayPal, Patreon, YouTube channel memberships. There's so many ways to uh, to support the channel. And got to put this in there because I don't po- talk about this enough. If you if you want some one on one, I do uh, consultation. Okay, I'm not a counselor, not a therapist, but I do consult with people. If you need help with somebody who's in a coercive situation, if you're in a coercive situation, a cult, a gang, a, a, a domestic situation, you want some help, reach out. I can help. Okay, you can contact me at the email address listed in the description section below or through my website. That all being said, I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.